Good day, everyone. Please uh, turn back in your Bibles, turn back to the first reading in uh, Exodus chapter 20, and we're looking at the second commandment today, which is verses 4 to 6, so that's where you should particularly have your eyes fixed, but uh, now I'm going to pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, your law in the Ten Commandments might do what your Word tells us it should do in our hearts tonight. Uh, first of all, we pray that it might expose the reality of the sin in our hearts uh, and show us in particular how wonderful it is that you have forgiven us despite our sin. But we pray also that as forgiven sinners, it will show us how to live to bring glory to your name and to bring honour to Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a look at the commandment there. Have a look at verses 4 to 6. And this one is very, very simple. It says, do not make an like the sun or the moon. Don't make anything that looks like the birds in the air. Don't make anything that looks like the fish in the sea. Don't make anything that looks like anything you see on this earth. Don't make anything that looks like a human being. Just don't make idols. And if you don't make them, whether you've made it or not, don't worship an idol. Don't bow down to an idol. Just don't worship them. That is the second commandment. It is really simple, isn't it? Okay, that's it, I'll sit down now. No, it's simple, but this is the commandment more than any other commandment, more than any other law in the Old Testament. This is the command that Israel failed in over and over and over and over again. In fact, if you want to sort of say, here's a summary of the whole Old Testament, it's Israel turning away from God and worshipping idols and then doing it again and again and again. That is the Old Testament. Uh, so, so when God wants to spell out the essence of sin, when he wants to say, Israel, th this is what you've done, he says, you turn from worshipping me to worshipping idols. That it, it's the essence of their sin. And it started from the very beginning. If you turn over just a few chapters, Moses hasn't even got back down with the law from Mount Sinai. And what do Israel decide to do? What does Aaron, Moses' brother, do? He says, I'll tell you what, this would be a really good idea, let's build an idol. Let's build an idol of a golden calf. And then he said, this is your God who, who brought you out of Egypt. God hasn't even finished speaking and they have started building an idol. So really simple command, but for some reason, really, really hard to follow. Uh, and we'll think about why it's so hard as we go on. But to start, I want to ask you, what do you think of when you think of idols? Uh, so, I mean, we all think generally of statues that people worship. So, uh, there's a, a picture. Of the, I had to think really hard this week about whether I should show an image of an idol in church tonight. You know, my conscience was sort of working on that, but I decided just for illustration's purpose. No one, no worshipping, you, you know. Uh, so, you know, we think of the golden calf. That's, that's what we think of. Or, if you know your Old Testament well, you know that over and over and over again in the Old Testament... They kept worshipping this, that's a Baal, it's a statue of Baal, you can find in a museum somewhere now, no one, well, I'm not aware of anyone who worships the Baals today, but if you know your Old Testament, you know over and over again, Israel stopped worshipping God and worshipped this Canaanite God, uh, Baal or the Baals. Uh, so that's what we often think of when we think of idols, but if you're like me, a Survivor fan, you might think of an immunity idol, like that one. And you might think, ah, that's what I think. When I think of the word idol, I think something that keeps me from being voted off the island, something that keeps me safe, like a, a, a lucky charm, that you might think of that. Or maybe the word idol makes you think of singers who couldn't get a recording contract for themselves, 
And, and so go on a reality television program. Yeah, you know, that we think of Guy Sebastian, we think of Australian Idol. Of course, for the Israelites, idols were not Guy Sebastian or Survivor. Idols were that. Uh, that's what the Israelites thought of. Idols were things made of stone or wood or maybe gold, like the golden calf. And the reality is, everyone else in the world worshipped them. So if you didn't worship Yahweh, the one true God of the Old Testament, you worshipped something like that. So in many ways, this second command, in one sense, uh, connects to the first command. Because if you remember what the first commandment was, no other gods. So, so if you're, if you're worshipping other gods than Yahweh in the ancient world, chances are you're worshipping an idol like that. Uh, do not have other gods besides me. Well, there's another god beside me. For many of us, though, that really is not our issue, is it? For many of us, our culture has been Christianized for 2,000 years. Uh, and so when you became a Christian, e even if you, you grew up in a Christian home, you didn't grow up in a Christian home, when you became a Christian, you wouldn't say, I turned to following Jesus from worshipping idols, Baal or Molech or Zeus or, or something like that. But for many people, including some here who come from other cultures, idol worship is all too real. So people who come... Uh, from uh, many African cultures, people who come from uh, Papua New Guinea, people who come from many Pacific Island nations, many people who, who come from all parts of Asia, idol worship is alive and well. Buddhism and Hinduism are idol-worshipping religions. It's what they are. So for people who've been saved out of those backgrounds, obeying this command is actually sort of a very clear-cut call. Stop worshipping the idols that your family used to have in your lounge room. For those of us who've come from a Christian culture, it's not as apparent as that. But for people from those cultures, they're like the first Gentile Christians, read about them in 1 Thessalonians 1, who turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. So for people from some backgrounds, this is far more real than for others of us. And even if you're not from that background, I'm not going to spend much time on this, even if that's not your background, the first application from this command, the first thing if you're writing notes to write down is, do not have idols like that in your home. Even if you're in no danger of thinking they are a God, even if it's just a memento from your trip to Bali, you, you, do not have idols like that in your home. Don't have little Buddhas in your garden. Don't have statues of Hindu gods. Even if you don't worship it, if someone does, God hates it and He does not want it in a Christian home. Because I don't have to tell you that uh, even if you've never gone near an idol like that in your life, this command still speaks to you. Because I hope you know that even if we didn't turn to God from worshipping statues, every one of us still turned to God from worshipping idols. Because we know that even if we're not tempted to divide our heart with Buddha... Or, or, or with a Hindu God, there are plenty of other things that turn our hearts away from total devotion to God. And that's the Apostle Paul's point in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Have a look at this verse with me. For the context here, what he's talking about, he's talking about how when you become a Christian, you become a new person, and you've got to get rid of the things that used to be part of your life. And so he says, therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, the sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire and greed, 
which is idolatry. You see, he's saying an idol doesn't have to be a statue. You see, no, an idol is anything that takes God's place in the centre of our lives. An idol is anything that we're greedy for, that, that we start to treat as, as more important than God, that becomes our number one fixation, anything that replaces glorifying God as our aim in life. And we know that so many things can become our idol, can't they? I think if I asked you now, you could come up with 10 things you are tempted to make idols in your life. Just, just And some of them are good things, some of them are bad things, some of them are indifferent things. Money, money's not bad in of itself, you need money to live, but the, the chase of money can become all-consuming and becomes our idol. Uh, our, our career, you want to honour God in your work, but, but the search to advance so easily takes over us and becomes the thing that's more important to us than anything else. Property, you need a, you need a house, but, but it's so easy to suddenly make the, the chase of worldly security your idol. Being popular, being liked on Instagram or Facebook. I think Jesus would walk into many homes today, a bit like he walked into the temple in the ancient world, and the first thing he would do is pull out his whip and smash everyone's phone. Because I think he would say, that thing you spend your whole life looking at must be your idol. Let's smash it and let's see how we go. You see, sport can become an idol. That's actually a danger for me. That's, that's a, an idol I've had in my life. I love sport more watching than playing. But <laughs> when, when you find that your, your actual mood is impacted by whether your team wins or not, that's a warning sign that that thing is, it might be an idol for you. It might be finding the perfect husband or wife. It might be the success of our children as we get older. We can turn bad things into idols. We can turn indifferent things into idols. We can turn good things into idols. See, what is the thing you talk about more than anything else? What's the thing that you devote your time to more than anything else? What's the thing you go to bed dreaming about? See, these things that push glorifying God, that push honouring Christ back into second or third or, or perhaps out of the places altogether, they are often our idols. John Calvin, the great reformer, he famously said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. I think it's absolutely true. Our hearts, sort of like this production line that just keep producing things to distract us from giving God all the glory. Idols, in other words. So this is such a simple command, but it's so hard to live by. But it's worth asking, why does God hate this particular sin so much? Uh, that's the question I want us to ask, because if, in fact, if you look down at verse 6, look at verse 6, God calls idolatry hating Him. It's not, oh gee, you, you've got an idol and you've got me, you don't love me as much as you used to. God says, no, 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 if you love an idol, if you worship an idol, you are hating me. That's very powerful what God says there. To worship idols is to hate God. Why does God then hate it so much? Well, on the one hand, it's because God wants what's best for us. And God knows that idols made of stone and wood can't do any good for you. They can't answer your prayers. They can't love you. They certainly can't save you and deal with the problem of your sin. So God, God says, why on earth would I want my children worshipping something that can't help them? And God knows that even our modern idols can't deliver what they promise us. 
these things that we make the centre of our life, they don't actually bring us the contentment that they promise us. So just look at our society, we've never had so much, we've never been so wealthy, we've never had so many distractions and things to use our time and our money on, and we've never been so angry, and we've never been so discontent. Why is that? Because those things don't fill what what sometimes gets called the the God-shaped hole in our hearts. They, They don't actually give us what they promise, contentment and hope and all those things. So God hates idolatry out of love for us. I like to think of it as a bit like if a parent's child is addicted to drugs, well, the parent hates that drug dealer who is selling the drugs to their child, rightly, I think. Well, in the same way, God hates idolatry that that takes us away from where we can actually find true contentment, which is in knowing Him. But more than that, God hates idolatry because our God is a jealous God. Just look now at the commandment again, Exodus 20, verse 5. He says, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God will not share His glory with another. God will not allow the worship that is His to be given to someone or something else. God is a jealous God. Now, now we tend to think of jealousy as a bad emotion, don't we? In fact, you you, you know, your parents probably said to you, don't be jealous of your brother or sister when they give them something you felt you deserved, you you know. And that's because it's a bad emotion for us because we're sinners. So when we're jealous, it's usually because we're coveting something or we're envious of, of what someone else has that we want and we think, hey, I deserve that, why, why can't I get it? But there is a godly jealousy. A, a husband and a wife should be jealous for one another. They should be not willing to share the intimacy they have with another person. That, that's part of a, a godly marriage. That relationship is for them alone, it's exclusive. But even there, we can warp that, can't we? Even in those sort of ways, we can warp that and where jealousy becomes suspicious and controlling and and insecure and selfish. We need to remember though, God is without sin. So God's jealousy is totally aimed for the good of those He loves. And so the point is, God is jealous for us. He will not share us. He will not share His glory. He does not accept the idea that we might just give even some of that glory to another. And so it's because of that that he gives this awful warning and this wonderful promise. It's a warning of punishment that actually goes down through generations. Look again at verses 5 and 6. He says, You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my command. Now, we struggle with this. We immediately read that and rather than jumping to the actual main point, which is how amazing is God's love that goes even for a thousand generations, we with that bit and say, hang on, how can children be held responsible for the sin of their parents? How is that fair? We ask that question because we live in an individualistic culture. Every other culture throughout history just says, of course, that's the case. God will hold families accountable for their sin. But what is it actually talking about? How are we to understand it? Some people say it's just saying that children follow their parents, usually. Like it's just sort of giving you a general rule, in good or in bad. 
And so when a father allows idolatry, the hatred of God, into the home, sadly, his children will follow him, they will hate God as well, and so they will face the same punishment. And there's certainly truth in that, that is a, a biblical truth, whether or not it's what it's saying here. I think it's saying more than that here. I think it is saying that this sin is so evil in God's eyes that when people worship idols, some of God's judgment will then impact three or four generations on, beyond them. It will flow on and impact future generations. It doesn't mean those generations are condemned, they can turn back to God and find forgiveness. But the punishment of idolatry, because it is such an evil sin, will impact future generations. And actually, if you think about it, you just know this is true. Just think about your Old Testament. King Solomon's idolatry. Remember King Solomon? The, the kingdom of Israel is as magnificent as it's ever going to be. King Solomon falls into the sin of idolatry. God judges him. The kingdom shrinks, divides into two, and, and never becomes the place it was meant to be. When he died, God didn't say, oh, well, I was only punishing Solomon. Now, his sons, I'll put the kingdom back the way it was. They inherited the consequences of their father's sin. In the same way, when God had finally had enough of the Israelites, you know, when they got sent off into exile, it wasn't just because that generation were particularly bad idolaters, they were probably better than most of the generations before. But God said, no, 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 it's because of years of idolatry that I'm judging this whole nation. I'm holding you collectively responsible. Now, this is not meant to be taken as a formula or, or something like that. Uh, we know, sadly, we know all too well, the children of faithful parents can walk away from the Lord. Uh, we know that children of unfaithful parents can turn and find faith in Christ and find forgiveness. And we praise God for that. There's many people here. Uh, and we know that every individual, as I said before, can turn and find forgiveness in Christ, whatever their background, whatever their parents did, whatever their sin. So this is not a formula, but it is a warning. And what it's saying is our sin doesn't just impact us, it impacts our children and it impacts our grandchildren. So for those who are parents or have the opportunity, parents in the future, this is saying to you, worship God alone. Do not allow idolatry into your home, not just for your sake, but for the sake of generations to come. But the bigger point here, though, is actually the contrast between verses 5 and 6. Look there. He says, four generations for those who hate God versus thousands of generations for those who love God. Yes, there are horrible consequences for people who are idolaters, but God's grace towards those who love Him is exponentially greater than even His judgment on sin. So you see, even in stressing judgment, God wants us to know my love is bigger, my grace is bigger than my judgment. Now though, back to us. How should we respond to this command? Well, the first thing I want to do is remind you of the first use of the law from our first sermon a couple of weeks ago. Remember I said the first use of the law is to show us our sin. The first use of the law is to show us our sin, not to make us feel guilty, but to show us how wonderful our forgiveness is in Christ. And so I pray that as I've been talking, you're, you've been thinking, do you know what, all too often I do chase after idols. Because if you haven't been thinking that, you either haven't been listening or you need to listen very carefully to the Sermon on the Ninth Commandment about lying. 
because the reality is we are all idolaters. It is the universal human sin. And so the first thing we need to do, listening to this, is to repent of the idolatry in all of our hearts and then thank God for His forgiveness through Christ. That even though we so often allow Him to be shunted out of the centre of our hearts, He still loves us and He still forgives us. See, Calvin is right, our hearts are just constantly producing idols. That is the reality. So our first response here should be just to thank God that Jesus died for an idolater like me. That's the first response. To thank God that Jesus died so an idolater like me could be forgiven, so that idolatrous hearts like ours could be washed clean. But now, as forgiven sinners, now we need to take seriously this command. If we want to live to please Jesus as forgiven sinners, we need to now say, well, let's get about smashing the idols in our life. Let's get about working out what are the things that we're giving the glory to rather than to God and let's smash them. Because you see, the thing is, we will never beat this one until Jesus returns. There should not go a week where we're not thinking, what are the idols I'm in danger of worshipping? Because this is just a constant battle until we're in glory with Christ. So we need to honestly look at ourselves and say, are there things that I am starting to put in front of Jesus? We need to ask it regularly, am I so caught up in my work or my studies that my faith is drifting? Is sport so important to me, like I said before, that it's stopping me giving Jesus the position He is owed? Am I so fixated on social media that it's pushed reading the Bible out of my life? Whatever it is, we need to constantly check our hearts. What am I devoting my mind to? What am I devoting my thoughts to, my time to, my efforts to? A really good question to ask is, if you really want to be honest with yourself and think about it, a good question to ask is, what would other people say is the most important thing in my life? What would someone who, you know, watched me for a week say is the most important thing in my life? Just by looking at how I live, just by looking at how I speak, just by looking at how I spend my time. And if that's not Jesus, well, then we need to do something about that. And by the way, the best way to do something about that is to not leave a gap for the idols to fill. Preventive medicine is always better than something getting a cure. So don't stop reading God's Word. Don't stop praying. Don't stop meeting together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the positive remedy to the threat of idolatry. Well, that's one sort of idolatry. Uh, and that's the idolatry that connects with the first commandment, like I said before, the one about no other gods. But this commandment also speaks to another type of idolatry, that we need to think about more briefly though. And that's where people are still worshipping the one true God, saying, yeah, I'm with Jesus, I'm a Christian, or I worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, but they make statues still, and they make idols still, and they make pictures still as a way of feeling closer to the one true God, or as a way of connecting with Jesus. You see, the golden calf was not like a Baal. People misunderstand this. When Aaron built the golden calf, he didn't think, oh, there's another God in there that now we're worshipping. He said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. In Aaron's mind, he didn't think, I'm I didn't think I'm breaking the first commandment. What I'm doing is just sort of, I can't see God, I can't feel God. So if we make an idol it brings God closer, it makes Him more understandable, it makes Him more approachable. 
And that happened over and over and over again in the Old Testament. It's the story of the Old Testament. Sometimes they did first commandment idolatry, where they said, let's stop worshipping Yahweh, let's worship the Baals. Other times they said, we're still worshipping Yahweh, but we'll do it by building a golden calf. Or we'll do it by building an altar on the top of a mountain in the north of the country because we can't be bothered going to Jerusalem anymore. They did it in all those ways. Over, They even did it with the temple. So the temple was there to say, God is with you. God symbolically dwells here. You can come and meet with God here. And they turned it into a lucky charm where they said, well, whatever we've got the temple, then no one's going to do anything to us. And sadly, that sort of idolatry carried into the New Testament people of God and carried into the church. People carry pictures of Jesus in their cars. I don't know how they know what Jesus looks like, but that's for another moment. As if somehow this image of Jesus will bring them luck. Soccer players touch a crucifix on their neck before they kick a penalty because they think Jesus cares about whether Man United or Chelsea win or not. You know, people build statues of Jesus in their churches and then people come and light candles in front of them and, and touch them and hope they'll be healed. People hang crucifixes around their necks and think that will keep them safe from something. That is not Christianity. That is pagan idolatry. And that's not even getting to statues of Mary or the saints, which raise other issues. Why does God hate that sort of idolatry too? Because people say, well, surely that's still giving God the glory. I'm not sharing it with another. Well, there's three reasons, at least three reasons I'm going to mention tonight that God hates it. And the first is, God will not be contained. God will not be made sort of easier for you to get and easier for you to understand. God is spirit. And any image of God, any picture, any statue, by definition, it cannot capture the glory of God. And it will actually give us a stunted and wrong picture of God, a small, controllable picture of God. That's why people love idols, because it means God is, He's there, and I can keep Him just there, rather than the God who is spirit, who is all-knowing, who is everywhere, who sees everything. When you try to capture Him in a picture of statue, it's like you're making Him small enough for you to control, and God hates that. It's the essence of sin. And by definition, when you make a, an image, you will stress one aspect of God's character at the expense of another. And so you will not get God in all His glory. So that's the first reason God will not be contained. The second reason, though, is it distracts us from how God has truly revealed Himself, which is by speaking. Turn your Bibles, flick over two or three books to Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy from Exodus, but go through Leviticus and Numbers... Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is where Moses is restating the Ten Commandments for Israel many, many years after he gave them to them the first time because they did such a good job following them the first time. So after many years, he said, I better tell you the Ten Commandments again. And uh, come to verse 15, where he warns them about idolatry. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, and it says, For your own good... Be extremely careful. Now, be extremely careful to do what? Jump down to verse 16. Not to act corruptly and make an idol for yourself in the shape of any figure, etc., etc., etc. Now, why not? Well, that's the bit in the middle there. Look at the bit in the middle. 
he says, because you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you out of the fire at Horeb. He said, if, if I'd wanted to show you what I look like, I would have showed you what I looked like, but I didn't show you what I looked like, because why? You would have dropped dead, one, if you'd seen the righteous God with all our sins, but also you can't see God. How do you know God? Look at verse, tw- go back to verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you from the fire. You kept hearing the sound of the words, but didn't see a form. There was only a voice. I hope you see the point here. God reveals himself not visually, but by speaking. That is how God reveals himself to us, by his word, by speaking. And so you come to know God, not by building a statue in his likeness, but by listening to his word. That's why there are no statues of Jesus in here. If you find a statue of Jesus, you can go on a search later on. If you find a statue of Jesus, take it out and throw it in the bin. There's not him anyway. That's why the Bible readings and the sermon are the absolute centre of our time together. Because we listen to God. That's why you don't wear a crucifix around your neck, but you do carry a Bible in your backpack. Because you don't approach God by touching a statue or by having a statue near you, you approach God by reading His Word and listening to His voice. God does not want us to picture or visualise Him because you cannot capture Him in a picture and by definition you will limit Him if you do. That's why the reading of Scripture and the preaching of the Word must be the centre of everything we do, not just when we gather. Sometimes people say to me actually, why do we still have sermons? Sometimes they go to university and do modern educational theory or something and they say, surely with modern educational techniques, there are better ways for people to learn. Don't you realise, Phil, that some people are visual learners and some people are, some word I can't pronounce, that means they learn by doing and, and, and some people learn in all sorts of, and some people aren't good listeners, they can't listen very well. And there is truth in that. It's why, you know, a PowerPoint slide can be helpful. But in the end, to know God you must become a listener and a reader, for that matter. At the time of the Reformation, many of the Reformers went into the churches and smashed all the idols that were there. And they knocked out some of the stained glass windows that had images of God on them. And the art historian in us says, oh, that's really sad that we lost those things. In fact, if you go on tours, I asked a couple of years ago when we were in England, we went on tours of some of the big churches over there and they hate the reformers they go oh before the reformation there were lovely statues in here but they smashed them all and they act like that's a bad thing i was like isn't that a good thing victoria often had to sort of quietly take me aside so i didn't talk to them about their (laughs) theology because the person who listens to god says i wish they had gone further because sadly in many churches around the world the second commandment is just ignored and people have statue idols in a place where you're meant to hear God speak but at the time well-meaning people challenged the reformers and they said the main argument they used was hey we get that we get idolatry is a problem but people can't read so give them pictures give them statues so they've got something to tangible to approach God with and the reformer says no 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 you must never encourage idolatry if they can't read let's teach them to read you see reading actually widespread reading came because of the reformation the enlightenment happened because of the reformation 
Because people said, I want to be able to read because I want to know how God speaks. So people learnt to read. And if they can't read, the reformer said, let's make sure they can come to church every day and hear the Bible read by someone else. That's where the Anglican idea of every day having a service of modern and evening prayer, uh, sorry, morning and evening prayer, wasn't very modern, morning and evening prayer in the church. Now, we don't need to do that today, why not? Because you can all read, I hope. If you can't, I'll meet with you and read the Bible every morning and every evening. You see, God reveals Himself by speaking and we know Him by listening, listening with our ears or with our eyes as we read the Word. I've got an old friend who never reads books. Uh, when, it's great for me because when he gets given books, he gives them all to me. So when we go over and visit, he's got a pile of books from that Christmas that people have given him and they're just all for me. I get them all and I love books. But when he became a Christian, he became a reader. But he still hates reading, but he just reads the Bible. He's still never read a novel in his life, still gives them all to me. He occasionally reads Christian books if I recommend them to him. But other than that, he just reads the Bible. As I say, he still doesn't like reading, he hasn't learned to love reading. But for him, it's obvious, this is how God speaks, so I love reading that. See, don't say, I'm not a reader. Well, I don't care whether you read novels, read the Bible. I don't care whether you find it easy, that's how God speaks, read it. Don't say, I can't concentrate in sermons, I can't sit still that long, work at it. Because this is how you know God. It's the only way to know God. To the older congregation this morning, I said, get a sleep apnea machine if you fall asleep in sermons. But I shouldn't be ageist. But of course, and my final point there on the outline, uh, there is one moment in history where God did reveal Himself visually. There is one time where people did see God walking amongst us and it was when Jesus walked on the earth. And that was the New Testament reading from Colossians 1. I hope you're listening, but I put verse 15 up on the screen here, where it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. You look at Jesus, you see God, or as John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is how we come to know God, not by bowing before some statue of Him, but by coming to know Him, God in the flesh, Emmanuel. God has spoken once and for all in His Son, listen to Him. Do you remember, that? Do you remember the baptism and the transfiguration of Jesus, where God says, this is my Son, and then He says, doesn't say look at Him, He says, listen to Him. Do you notice though, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you read all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, there are no physical descriptions of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? No physical descriptions. How tall was Jesus? We have no idea. What colour eyes did Jesus have? Probably brown, because he was sort of Arab looking probably, but we don't even know that. What colour hair did he have? Was he good looking or ugly? Was he in between? We don't know anything about what Jesus looked like. Why not, do you think? This is really important because it is not what Jesus looked like that shows us God. It was what He said. And I think they didn't give us those descriptions because they knew with our idolatrous hearts that we would paint Him and we would build pictures of Him and we did but we just made Him European. 
You see, what matters, how does Jesus show us God? By what he says and what he did. So the way he lived his life in perfect obedience to his Father's will. The way he taught us how to understand the Scriptures as all pointing to him and finding their fulfilment in him. And especially the way he gave his life to pay the price for our sin and then rose from the dead to defeat death once and for all. So we don't worship Jesus now by bowing down to a statue of him. We don't worship Jesus now by by having a picture of him on our wall, a picture that probably looks nothing like he looked anyway. How do we worship Jesus? We worship Jesus by listening to him, by believing in him, by trusting in him, by listening to his word and by giving him the glory as we live for him. That's how you worship Jesus and that's how we glorify God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we admit that all too often we do not worship you alone. All too often our hearts are divided and we chase after idols, idols that come from our own heart. And Father, we repent of that and we just thank you so much that you were willing to send your Son to die for us despite our idolatry, to pay the price for our idolatry. And we pray now that as people who know you and love you, that you might help us to realistically look at our own hearts and see when things are becoming idols and put them in their proper place. But Father, we also pray that we'll be people who approach you properly, who understand that you are the God who has spoken. And so we pray that we'll be people who listen to your word and who long to hear it and long to read it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.